And welcome to the Ides of Oberon. It must be March 15th and it's a glorious day. And Oberon Zell, one of the, the primary fathers of our traditions in the pagan world, and also so much about how it is, is going to share tonight um, his series, Ides of Oberon, and, and of course, on the glorious day of Julius Caesar and the Ides of Oberon itself. So we wanted you to all kind of do that. Do me a favor, if you're watching this for the first time, please share, 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 share it out. You can share it out while it's live. You can share it out as a recording. You'll be able to see this on Magic TV, Pagan World, and many other places, and you check it out even where Oberon is. And remember, you want to know more information about Oberon, go to OberonZell.com. Let me introduce the man himself. Well, welcome, my friends. This is the second episode of my new monthly video broadcast, The Ides of Oberon. As you probably know, I'm Oberon Zell, and I'm speaking on tonight on behalf of the Pagan World Project, which I'm very proud to represent. There'll be time for questions and answers at the end of my talk, so take notes. Tonight's episode, The Once and Future Religion. Beware the Ides of March, said the soothsayer to Julius Caesar on this date 2,065 years ago. The Ides of March, the 15th of the month by the old Roman calendar, is best known today as the date on which Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC. E. Caesar was stabbed to death at a meeting of the Roman Senate, a rather extreme demonstration of low approval rating. As many as 60 co-conspirators led by Brutus and Cassius were involved. According to Plutarch, a seer had warned that harm would come to Caesar no later than the Ides of March. On his way to the theater of Pompey, where he would shortly be assassinated, Caesar passed the seer on the street. And he joked, ah, the Ides of March are come, implying that the prophecy had not been fulfilled. In which the seer replied, I, Caesar, but not gone. This meeting is famously dramatized in Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, when Caesar is warned by the soothsayer to beware the Ides of March. And of course, he doesn't listen. It's now been a full year since the first deaths from COVID presaged the global pandemic under which shadow we've been living ever since. But this year, the Ides of March have a more positive association with the rollout of vaccines that will very soon be available to everyone. So what do I mean by the once and future religion? It's about reclaiming our lost legacy, so long severed by monotheistic religion based on patriarchal dominion, misogyny, and bitter hatred of all things female, from mortal women to the goddess herself. Bridging the gap of millennia to reignite and pass the torch of the mother's love to our children and our children's children. One of my earliest essays written in the late 60s at the very dawn of the new pagan emergence was titled, An Old Religion for a New Age. Interviewers often ask me how I got started on my path of paganism, magic, and wizardry. I explained that my earliest reading, when I was around two years old, were children's versions of the Greek myths in the childcraft set of children's books. By the time I was old enough to attend Sunday school, I was already thoroughly steeped in the myths and legends of many gods of many peoples, so the Jewish creation myth and stories of the Bible were, to me, just one more cultural mythos, not some ultimate truth. Jehovah was only one God among many, and his Hebrew chosen people were not my ancestors, 
who were Celtic Druids and Norse Vikings. I devoured the myths and legends of all peoples, which led into fairy tales, fantasy stories, and ultimately to science fiction, which I continue to enjoy today. As a growing boy, I read every sci-fi paperback and pulp scene I could get my hands on with imaginative, provocative, and visionary stories by such legendary authors as Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov, Theodore Sturgeon, C.M. Kornbluth, Arthur C. Clarke, Olaf Stapleton, Alfred Bester, Philip Jose Farmer, and Edgar Rice Burroughs. I was particularly influenced, however, by the 12 juvenile novels of Robert Anson Heinlein, which came out one each year from the late 1940s through the 1950s during my school years. These were the eagerly anticipated Harry Potter books of my generation, mentoring us kids on what it meant to be truly human as we assimilated these lessons into adulthood. I had a perfect attendance record at Sunday school, never missing a single day until I went off to finishing school in my senior year. I participated fully in my family's congregational church, having roles usually as narrator in all the church pageants, going to all the retreats and campouts, taking confirmation, singing songs around the campfire. I didn't see myself in conflict with my church. I just eventually outgrew it, putting aside childish things. Christianity simply wasn't big enough for a kid who'd grown up on world mythology and science fiction. And with the hubris of youth, I thought I could do better. Come up with a new religion that included the best of all the world's religions, but also looked toward a visionary future rather than just the fossilized past. Yes, deeply rooted in time, myth, and history, but also branching upwards, reaching for the stars, <coughs> boldly going where no one has gone before, as a certain TV show would later proclaim. And science fiction provided the key. Heinlein's signature phrase was ad astra per ardua, through struggle to the stars. And when I graduated from high school in 1961 and headed off to college at the dawn of the psychedelic 60s, I was primed and ready for a new religious possibility. And so was my generation. And that year, my 19th Heinlein's new novel culminated his dozen juveniles with Stranger in a Strange Land for adults only. And the rest is mystery. I'll continue that story shortly. But first, I'd like to jump ahead a decade and share an obscure article that was originally published in the January 13th, 1970 issue of Look Magazine. As a subscriber, I was blown away, and I rushed right out to buy extra copies. But when I looked for this article in the newsstand copies, I was astonished to discover that it wasn't there. In fact, in my subscriber's copy, the page wasn't even numbered and the rest of the signature was nothing but ads. Moreover, that turned out to be the final issue of the magazine. In more recent searches, I can't find it online either, so evidently the article doesn't officially exist and never did. <coughs> but I kept my copy, and I drew upon it for inspiration in developing the Church of All Worlds and the pagan movement. I reprinted it 20 years later in Green Egg, volume 22, number 88, February 1st, 1990. This is now 2021, 
And I find it particularly relevant at this time to see how we're doing with the new religion we've been developing for the past half a century. So here's the article. <coughs> Why we need a new religion by John Poppy from Look Magazine. There I was, 10 years old, spending two weeks at YMCA camp on Chesapeake Bay, doing my best to explain to a counselor who had asked, why did you go into town for mass if you aren't Catholic? Not yet we aren't, I corrected. Religion, I deduced, was just like Boy Scout badges. Your family worked up from Baptist or Methodist or something, I, I wasn't sure, through Episcopalian, which we were, then High Episcopalian, fancier, and finally to the fanciest religion I'd seen, the equivalent of Eagle Scout. Just a few more tests, I lied, lusting for status, then we'll be Catholics. <laughs> it all got straightened out, but at that point, I was acting out the establishment view of religion in the United States. Millions of people walk into churches every week, sit a spell, and walk out unchanged. They'd feel better if they spent the time planting geraniums. They pray in public to get credit for piety or to strike some bargain with God. One thing I never bothered to wonder in my childish fantasy was, who gives the tests? Not religion. Not anymore. Just one of many indicators is the Gallup poll. In 1957, 14% of Americans thought religion was losing influence on the nation's life. By 1961, the figure had blimped up to 70%. And that was a while ago. We have used up the land's ability to lend us meaning. Setting up the new country took Americans well into the 19th century. Screwing wealth out of it brought us this far into the 20th. We looked out to the West, not into ourselves. But when the human tide reached the borders of the land and turned up like a great comber curling back on itself, men and women started to wonder, what am I doing here? We need a new religion. The United States has arrived at a moment in which we must have and can afford a motive force less cruel and divisive than the dynamic imperious Judeo-Christianism that has pervaded our civil religion for more than 2,000 years. All of our Protestant ethic, primness, technology, economic planning, and social tinkering have helped us blitz a continent, but they have not been enough to make us whole. Dualism has gone wild, splitting God from nature, sacred from secular, pleasure from duty, man from woman. It is sad here in 1970, ministers wonder if those Gallup figures are somehow their fault. Young people look outside any church for ways to combine their sense of wonder with a sense of purpose. Older people, anxious, feel abandoned by churches that seem less interested in comfort than in social activism. Oppressed people look for escape. This is no attack upon old approaches. I'm only saying that we must go beyond them. In the future, men and women will find life bearable only when they deliberately tune every action to a search for deep purpose in themselves and each other. We need a religion not of abstraction, but of events, celebrations in which people can touch the mysteries of the universe by touching each other. We need a religion that will carry the words of, do ye even so unto them, into action. 
Its rites would celebrate brotherhood in an intense sharing experience or the, of the koinomonia, the fellowship of the committed, of New Testament days, so that people could look forward to them. These might be the only scheduled events of an otherwise loosely structured religion. Such deep sharing of ultimate concern, a Paul Tillich definition of religion, might not appeal at first to traditional interdirected churchgoers who resist touching each other, so new forms will have to develop outside the establishments. People can choose what they want. If the experience of parishes now experimenting with modernized masses is any clue, the new forms will win converts fast. By deliberately celebrating the links between all beings, we can reunite the private and the public life, the inner and the outer man, and pull the holy blanket off authoritarians and power seekers. No more talk about a Lord and Almighty, a heavenly Father who sits in judgment, loving or not, somewhere above and aloof. Such talk has been used mainly to frighten people since the Middle Ages, when lords were something real for serfs to fear. It conditions us to Pavlovian obedience to smaller bosses down here on the ground. We need a religion that, for, that can forget merit badges and hierarchies, knowing it lives on the energy arcing between believers. Administrator priests of the past have made churches, but not religions. With confidence that every move they made is sacred, ordinary people could minister to each other in their own ways, giving and seeking comfort. Clergy could be worker priests, not full-time professionals. Except for a few beautiful cathedrals, churches would go the way of idols. Freed from the drudgery of caring for buildings and budgets, priests could afford more personal involvement with people. Celebrating liturgies in homes, in small groups, in places rented for the purpose. We need a religion that is life-oriented enough to deal with death. Instead of viewing natural death as a catastrophe and offering hints of afterlife as apology, we might concentrate on living fully, postponing neither pleasures nor obligations, so that death in old age can be accepted as part of the ecological cycle. Ultimately, death from war or carelessness could be an occasion for mourning designed to change its causes. We need a religion that will make cruelty to other humans, to animals, plants, and the earth itself, not just bad, but as crazy and painful as hacking off your own foot. A new religion would honor those who live in harmony with the earth instead of trying to subjugate it. We need a religion that will bring the body and the senses up out of neglect so that they and the intellect can grow together. We need a religion that will expand our sense of reality. We must involve ourselves in powerful rituals and must seek the insights of the shamans among us. We must welcome the part of our inner selves that wants to wander joyfully out of control once in a while. Ritual has always been one way for people to share feelings and experience the almost inexpressible. Of course, it has to grow naturally. The Russian government is learning to its confusion that artificial rights are soon exposed as safe measures that turn people off who don't like to be manipulated. The shaman, a prophet, wizard, oracle, 
who usually operates in a trance, perceives messages in the forces of nature, listening to voices most of us do not hear. We must heed the claim of poets like William Blake and scientists like Teilhard de Chardin that the true universe does not reveal itself to the rationalistic, mechanical, skeptical mind alone. A vital religion must open itself to deeper or, or different forms of consciousness, faith healers, housewives, or whatever. Historian Theodore Rosak writes, besides our eyes of flesh, there are eyes of fire that burn through the ordinariness of the world and perceive the wonders and terrors beyond. The tightly controlled objective mind sees beauty in order, formula, predictability. In contrast to the beauty of the magical vision is not one of order, but of power. We are awed, not informed. An older authority, St. Augustine said, if thou couldst comprehend him, he were not God. All of this does not mean a throwback to pure superstition. We couldn't go back even if we wanted to. Reason and science are probably embedded in American genes by now. We must, however, welcome a thrust toward wholeness, toward the integration of some nearly forgotten talents with our newer ones, toward an end to our accursed dualisms. As you can see in the rest of this issue, a fresh religious attitude does not have to be invented. Its elements are already loose, struggling to be born. If you consider yourself religious, try staying open to all the forms of search and worship around you. Something new might conform what you, deep down, already knew. <sighs> so, the time is just right for a natural religion. Alistair Crowley advocated the use of lunar, solar, and seasonal nature-based rituals. In 1914, he wrote to C.S. Jones of the North American OTO about a ritual of ISIS that his lodge had performed. Crowley said, I hope you will arrange to repeat this all the time, say every new moon or every full moon, so as to build up a regular force. You should also have a solar ritual to balance it, to be done at each time the sun enters a new sign, with special festivity at the equinoxes and solstices. In this way, you can establish a regular cult, and if you do them in a truly magical manner, you create a vortex of force which will suck in for a natural religion. People like rites and ceremonies, and they are tired of hypothetical gods. Insist on the real benefits of the sun the mother force, the father force, and so on, and show that by celebrating these benefits worthily, the worshipers unite themselves more fully with the current of life. Let the religion be joy, but with a worthy and dignified sorrow in death itself, and treat death as an ordeal, an initiation. In short, be the founder of a new and greater pagan cult. Well, C.S. Jones didn't do anything with this mandate, but others did, particularly one Gerald Gardner, who met the great beast briefly just before Crowley's death in 1947. The modern pagan community can be dated from various germinal events in the mid-20th century, and one of these 
was the publication of Gardner's Witchcraft Today in 1954, which resulted in the first generation of self-identified modern witches. However, Wiccan witchcraft was generally unknown outside of the UK until 1969, when Gardner assigned Ray and Moserary Buckland to bring the craft to the US. The exponential growth of modern witchcraft and neo-paganism over the past 60 years has shown that Crowley's vision of the revival of natural religion, a new and greater pagan cult, was prophetic. Gerald Gardner had that same vision and applied it successfully to his Wiccan religion, including inducting his first initiate in 1950. But Gardner's early Wiccans never thought of themselves as pagans. The emergence and evolution of this new and greater pagan cult can be briefly summarized in decades as follows. From the 1900s to the 1920s, magical societies, arcane lodges and esoteric fraternities, creating mythic rites and rituals. The 1930s, academics and folklorists spawned romantic writings and societies hearkening to old pagan ideals. The 1940s, foundational scholars formed. The 1950s, British traditional witchcraft, BTW, becomes established and spreads with considerable publicity. The 1960s, the founding of various non-Wiccan groups from the 1967, all of them eventually claiming the identity of pagan. The 1970s, pagan councils, alliances, and associations, early pagan newsletters. The Gaia thesis in 1970 unites pagan community with common theology the first pagan festivals and conventions. The 1980s, pagan festivals proliferate with home computers and explosive proliferation of pagan publications. The 1990s, festivals become huge. Major high quality newsstand magazines, the early internet, BBCs, etc. The 2000s, pagan businesses proliferate Newsstand magazines disappear or go digital. Paganism goes internet. The 2010s, pagan stores and festivals flourish. Facebook and YouTube, pagan numbers increase exponentially into the millions. Paganism is recognized as the second largest religion in America and the fastest growing. In the 2020s, in the great COVID pandemic, pagan festivals go virtual and global via Zoom. Paganism becomes recognized as a major world religion and a major player in earth healing and restoration. So that's a little history bringing us up to today. Now to resume that story I left off before the reading the essay on why we need a new religion, Lance Christie and I met in September of 1961 at the very start of our college years. Inspired by Robert Heinlein's latest sci-fi novel, Stranger in a Strange Land, Lance and I shared water on April 7th, 1962, founding a water brotherhood we called ATL, A-T-L, an Aztec word meaning water. Our initial mission statement was to make the world safe for people like us. Over the next five years, our esoteric aqua fraternity grew to more than 100 people before undergoing an amiable mitosis which resulted in two sister branches, the Public Church of All Worlds 
the CAW, and the Underground Association for the Tree of Life, ATL. It was at that juncture, September 7th, 1967, in a talk at a local beatnik coffee house, that I first claimed the term pagan as a religious identity for myself and the CAW. Prior to then, pagan was used most commonly by Christians as a derogatory slur for primitive savages and other non-believers who missionaries were supposed to go out and convert to Jesus. It was always those pagans, never us pagans. Six months later, March 4th, 1968, the Church of All Worlds was legally incorporated and the first issue of Green Egg was printed, that Ostara. Promoting the identity of pagans who claim their pre-Christian spiritual heritage to adopt the designation as well. And thus a movement of green religion was launched, embracing nature worship, pantheism, polytheism, goddesses, priestesses, the Gaia thesis, the wheel of the year, common liturgy, sacred sex, sexual diversity, polyamory, and many other features rejected by the mainstream religions. Foundations were laid, memes were established, and a legacy was created. Meanwhile, the Allen Foundation continued to operate invisibly behind the scenes, primarily for social and ecological causes, eventually morphing into the present day Association for the Tree of Life, ATL. Google it. Lance was chosen to head up the Atlan branch and I was chosen to lead the CAW, which we both proceeded to do for the rest of our lives. Among many other accomplishments, Lance became a co-founder of Earth First. Sadly, he died of pancreatic cancer at Samhain of 2010. Our relationship over half a century was that of Kirk and Spock, Lance being Spock. Lance and I had both been avid students of comparative religion and the history of Christianity. When we decided to go public with the Church of All Worlds, we were keenly aware of the profound responsibility we were taking on in the founding of a new religion. Nearly 2,000 years before our time, a gentle rabbi of Nazareth had preached a simple reformist doctrine of love, compassion, inclusivity, and non-judgmentalism railing against hypocrites and exhorting the rich to give to the poor and preaching that the kingdom of heaven is within you. A thousand years later, intent on world dominion under a single emperor pope, his purported followers were waging brutal crusades and holy wars, an oxymoron if ever there was one, and burning people at the stake for heresy, all in his name. We debated this matter at great length. What had gone wrong? And more to the point, what foundations could we lay in our lifetimes for our new religion to ensure that a thousand years from now, our descendants would not be perpetuating atrocities in our name? In our analysis, we concluded that Jesus's teachings and those of the early church had several fatal flaws, which eventually and inevitably led to the Spanish Inquisition. Betty didn't expect that. And we conceived of antidotal memes to each of these as follows. Number one was monothesisism, the idea that there is but one true right and only way, otro, O-T-R-O-W. As Isaac Bonowitz said, monotheism, 
monarchy, monoculture, monogamy, monotony. This meme eventually implies that all other ways, inevitably implies that all other ways are wrong and thereby evil. And they must be repudiated, punished, and ultimately eradicated. The stain and eradication and condemnation of infidels, heretics, apostates, non-believers, and godless pagans. Well, the antidotal meme for that was infinite diversity in infinite combinations. Vulcan idic, I-D-I-C. Different strokes for different folks. Number two was monotheism, only one God. Divinity is not only singular, but wholly transcendent, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, and solely masculine, our Father in heaven. To that, we propose the antidotal meme, polytheism, multiple gods as well as goddesses, the divine feminine, imminent divinity, thou art God, thou art goddess. <sighs> Number three, exclusivity. The idea of a chosen people as a righteous elite, divinely favored above all others. The antidotal meme for that was inclusivity. As Starhawk said, we have a place set for you at our table. All are welcome who choose to be here and play nice. We are all children of the same mother. Number four was missionaryism, proselytizing, evangelism, and conversion, what we call proselytution. The antidotal mean for that was no missionaries or proselytution. Those who would join us must seek us out on their own initiative. And in the early days, that wasn't all that easy. Number five, uniformity. The idea that all people must believe and behave the same. Well, the antidotal meme for that was uniqueness, embracing and cherishing diversity. Number six, heaven and hell, an eternal reward or punishment in the afterlife. The antidotal meme for that was multiple afterlife options, including reincarnation for those who want to return, and an emphasis not on an afterlife, but on an afterbirth. Number seven, patriarchalism, the disempowerment of women. Clergy could only be men, priests. Well, the antidotal meme to that is obvious. Feminism, the empowerment of women, the ordination of priestesses. Only pagan religions have priestesses. And then number eight, unsanctioned sexual relations, profane and sinful. Well, the antidote to meme for that was sacred sexuality in all acts of love and pleasure. Number nine was body shame and modesty taboos. They knew they were naked and they were ashamed. So the antidotal meme to that was holy nakedness, ritual and social nudity, going skyclad. Number 10 was heterosexual monogamy. One man and one woman as the only acceptable form of love and marriage. The antidotal meme to that was polyamory, sanctioning all consensual loving relationships, regardless of sex, gender, or number. Which of course includes one-on-one -on -one as well as many, many. Number 11, regarding nature as inanimate, a creation 
made by God to be exploited by man. Well, the anecdotal meme to that has been the Gaia thesis, Mother Earth, Mother Nature, animism, nature as sacred, alive, and sentient. Her. Number 12, original sin as disobedience and insubordination requiring submission to authority. Well, the antidotal meme to that was harm none and be excellent to each other as our only commandments. Otherwise, do what thou wilt. <sighs> Number 13, heresy. To be punished severely as disbelief in the official proclaimed dogma and doctrines. Well, the antidotal meme to that was no beliefs, no dogma. Question everything and everyone. Number 14, the Holy Roman Empire, a universal empire holding dominion over all peoples under a single ruler, one king to rule them all. <laughs> well, the anecdotal meme to that is the United Federation of Planets from Star Trek, the Rebel Alliance from Star Wars, confederacies, networks, and alliances of free and sovereign peoples. <sighs> and 15, perhaps most importantly, a failure of the founding prophet to write down his teachings, leaving it to others decades and centuries later to make it all up to suit themselves and the agenda of empire. So the antidote to that has been writing it all down while the founders are still alive. <sighs> Through the publication of Green Egg and ever-expanding alliances and councils, we embedded these antidotal memes deeply into the growing pagan movement. And thus began what we came to call the ultimate conspiracy. Because by the time you know enough to grok what we're really all about, it's too late. You're already one of us. Half a century later and well into a new civic millennium and zodiacal aeon, I'm proud that these powerful memes are firmly rooted in the worldwide pagan movement and community that has grown up like a global garden from the seeds we planted so long ago. Modern paganism is now recognized as the second largest religion in America and the fastest growing. Our community has certainly had our share of conflicts, controversies, and witch wars over the decades. Many of them aired in the pages of my own Green Egg magazine. There was quite a debate early on among factions of Gardnerian and Alexandrian witches as to whether they even wanted to be considered pagan at all. Some still don't. There was the whole issue whether gays could even be witches at all or raise magic, it all being about polarity. There was Z. Budapest's assertion, 1973 or so, that witchcraft was women's religion and men couldn't be witches. There was the attempted infiltration of Nazis and white supremacists in the early 70s, the National Renaissance Party, and the later Asatru Ordinists, and Satanists in the late 80s, the Temple of Set. There were major debates over the legitimacy of self-initiation, solitaries, and eclectics. Today, major issues are fluffy bunnies and transgenderism. But sanity and an appreciation for diversity ultimately prevailed. Pagan festivals helped a lot as folks from all sides of these issues came together, attended each other's workshops and rituals, partied late into the night, 
shared mead, feed, weave, and screed around the campfire. It even affected romantic trysts and liaisons across the traditional boundaries. Today, there are many pagan ecumenical alliances and associations. I personally co-founded several of the earliest and annual pagan pride events in more cities every year. The word pagan, as we all know, comes from the Latin paganus, meaning simply peasant or country dweller. This gave rise to the French word passant, peasant. As a religious term, it has been commonly used by anthropologists to designate indigenous folk religions of particular regions and peoples, and by classical scholars to refer to the great ancient pre-Christian civilizations of the Mediterranean area, as in the phrase pagan splendor in reference to classical Greece and Rome. Modern paganism, often referred to as neo-paganism to distinguish it from original and indigenous pre-Christian folk religions, is a revival, a reconstruction, and a reimagining of ancient classical indigenous nature-based religions and attitudes adapted for the modern world. Paganism is an umbrella term denoting a spectrum of natural religions of the living earth, just as Christianity is an umbrella term encompassing more than 4,500 sects and denominations. But while most Christian denominations consider all the others to be despicable heresies, we pagans generally get along pretty well with each other. Pagans generally view humanity as a functional organ within the greater organism of all life, rather than as something special, created separate and above the rest of the natural world. Pagans seek not to conquer nature, but to harmonize and integrate with her. Paganism should be regarded as green religion, just as we have green politics and green economics. Look around at all that pentagram jewelry and, you know, wear your own proudly. <laughs> we're out, we're about, and we're everywhere. Indeed, going back to CAW's initial mission statement, we have, over these past 60 years, certainly made the world a much safer place for people like us. How have we accomplished this? Well, we didn't do it as a cult or secret society. We did it as a religion, and one for the whole holy family. In country villages of pre-Christian Europe and the British Isles, everyone was pagan and celebrated the mysteries of life, death, and rebirth, the wheel of the year, the spirits of place, and the mating dance of the mortal gods, green and red, and the immortal goddess of nature. That was their religion. They're relinking to life, the earth, the seasons, and each other. And in Celtic lands, until the Roman conquest, Druids were the priesthood of that religion. Witches were the village shamans, commonly an aging widow living in a little cottage at the edge of the forest, with her herb garden and wild-crafted bundles hanging from the rafters to dry. Cats and other critters, furry, feathered, and scaly, wandering in and out and sleeping on her bed. And people, mostly women, would come to her for counsel, divination, spells, healing. But witchcraft wasn't anybody's religion. With theology, liturgy, clergy, and structure, the other villages weren't witches, and witches were not clergy of any church. In some places, Thessaly and Tuscany, there seemed to have been secret mystery cults of witches, wild women like the Bacchae, but mainly European village witchcraft was a craft, like basketry, pottery, smithing, masonry, 
carpentry, brewing, harness making, the special crafts of the village, which included wart cunning, healing, midwifery, beast mastery, psychology, spellbinding, divination and clairsentience, and considerable deep women's wisdom. Old wives' tales passed down orally from mothers to daughters through the generations. But throughout the Western world, these pagan villages were overrun and conquered by implacable empire. First the Roman Empire, and then the Catholic Holy Roman Empire, and finally the Protestant Reformation. The priestly Druids were brutally exterminated in Caesar's Gallic Wars, and with them the coherence and context of the old religion. The scattered remnants of village paganism were passed down in the form of folklore, songs, dances, myths, legends, superstitions, and holiday customs to be recovered and woven once again into a greater context by modern neo-pagan revivalism. But our task in this time is not merely to recover and restore the esoteric mysteries and secret societies, cults, and occult orders. Rather, for a new pagan movement globally, it is our task to restore the greater context of pagan religion for the whole family and the wider community. And that means necessarily a certain diffusion at the growing edges. The modern neo-pagan Renaissance officially began in 1967 with the adoption of the term by a core of visionary scholars, founders, leaders, and clergy. But as with any religion of the people, which paganism is by definition, a congregational laity has emerged around the clergy with successive generations ever further removed in concentric circles from the pure vision of the founders. Many of our dedicated pagan leaders today lament this inevitable dilution of the vision, but I regard this as a sign of our success. Look at Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam. They all have a core of priests and other clerics who are called and committed to that vocation. And they all have their larger congregations who don't have the specific clergy vocation, but still show up for services and support the church. And even wider still, they're the vast majority who loosely consider themselves Christian or Buddhist or whatever, but they don't belong to any particular church. And so it is with paganism. Ben Franklin, statesman, inventor, bon vivant, philosopher, wizard, was once asked what he considered his greatest invention. He said, Americans. For he was the one who coined and popularized that umbrella term to include the many groups who had settled in the New World, but thought of themselves as separate. Puritans, Lutherans, English, French, Virginians, New Yorkers, Whigs, Tories. Franklin promoted the inclusive identity of Americans through his publications and writings. And it brought all these diverse factions together, making people and making possible an American revolution. Though it still took a while for the wider identity to be embraced by all. In the words of Steve Zaffron and Dave Logan, future-based language is responsible for historical moments becoming turning points. Benjamin Franklin is credited with inventing the word American and in so doing transforming 13 warring colonies into a nation. His word displaced what most political analysts of the day predicted what was inevitable that the colonies would never speak with one voice. 
Steve Zafford and Dave Logan, the book, The Three Laws of... And that is what the concept of pagan did. It brought together Hellenics, Druids, Kemetics, Norse shamans, witches, Ferifarians, Minoans, Dianics, and CAW visionaries inspired by myths, fantasy, and science fiction into a single broad religious coalition. Pagans, literally people of the earth, ancient ways, the old religion, nature religion, green religion. We learned that what unites us is more important than what divides us. And paganism became a movement now recognized as the fastest growing and second largest religion in America with nearly 4 million people so identifying. I suppose we must consider that we've come of age when we now have major pagan factions splintering off from the greater pagan movement and community. First, we had the New Agers and goddess spirituality people. We all thought they were us. Then the heathens, whom all other pagans consider to be as pagan as the rest of us, but who don't want to be included under that same umbrella label. And now we have the devotional polytheists, another faction which pagans would think of as pagan, but who also want to be distinguished as separate. We have pantheists separating themselves. There is even a tiny faction of atheopagans who deny the existence of the gods. For people who are suspicious of organized religion, not to worry, religion. Recently, it was announced that finally, after 60 years, Heinlein's influential novel, Strange in a Strange Land, is going to be produced as a miniseries on the Sci-Fi Channel. As readers know, the story, published in 1961, takes place 25 years after the first attempted human mission to Mars, which crashes and everybody dies, except a newborn baby conceived on the journey who is rescued, raised, and trained in their ways and language by wise and ancient indigenous Martians, the way we raised baby chimps in human homes and teach them sign language. 25 years later, a second Mars expedition proves successful, discovers this young man, and brings him back to Earth, the ancestral homeworld he's never known. And he looks upon all the beliefs, customs, and institutions we take for granted particularly in the areas of relationships, sex, death, money, theology, and religion, from the perspective of an alien anthropologist. An alluring perspective the reader is inexorably drawn into. And in the course of the story, our messianic Martian lad forms a church to obtain legal protection for a growing congregation whose minds and lives have been profoundly transformed by the insights gained from that alien perspective the church of all worlds. Stranger in a Strange Land was the Bible of the acid generation. It introduced us to pantheism, imminent divinity, water sharing, pagan priestesses, ritual nudity, psychic abilities, afterlife, communal living, sacred sex, polyamory, and group marriage. And in the novel, published in 1961, and set, remember, 25 years after the first human mission to Mars, which still hasn't occurred yet, so we're still looking decades into the future. The mainstream society and established religion is so outraged by these radical concepts that this alien religion, that an angry mob with torches and pitchforks burns down the temple and murders the prophet. But see, here's the thing. We've already changed the world so much that even now, decades before the story is even set, 
That extreme backlash reaction is inconceivable. The real-life Church of All Worlds and the worldwide neo-pagan movement it founded and fostered is already over 50 years old, and it's far too late to stamp it out. The war is over, and we won. Three generations have already grown up and are raising their own kids in a world transformed by the new pagan renaissance. And paganism is set to become the preeminent religion of the Aquarian age. Over 50 years ago, the Church of All Worlds became the first fully incorporated church in modern times to claim the identity of pagan, to legally ordain women as priestesses, to sanction and perform gay and multiple marriages, to adopt ritual and social nudity, skyclad, and to restore and revive the elaborate immersive ritual dramatizations of the ancient Catholic mysteries of Beltane, Samhain, and Eleusis in the Wheel of the Year. We were also the first to articulate and develop the Gaia thesis as our foundational theology, reconciling science and religion. At a germinal clergy retreat in 1985, we updated CAW's mission statement as follows. The sacred mission of the Church of All Worlds is to evolve a network of information, mythology, and experience to awaken the divine within and to provide a context and stimulus for reawakening Gaia and reuniting her children to tribal community dedicated to responsible stewardship and the evolution of consciousness. So mote it be. And now I welcome any questions that you might have, and um, you can either ask them live or put them up on chat. And we've got about 10 minutes or so.